On the Healthy Human Revolution podcast, Dr. Lori Marbus interviews nutrition and lifestyle medicine experts and extraordinary guests whose informative and inspiring stories will empower you with the knowledge to transform your life and health. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus and welcome back. Um, and I would really excited and I can't wait to laugh a little bit with this one is Mark McConville. How are you today? Great, Lori. How are you? I'm good. I've been looking forward to this one ever since our mutual friend, Clint Patterson, excuse me, told me all about you. And when I learned he was a stand-up comedy comic, I was really intrigued. But you use laughter as medicine, so to speak, but we'll get to that in a second. But I'd love to hear more about your role, your profession as a stand-up comedy com comedian, excuse me. How does that even get started? Like were you the kid that was always the class clown or how does one find themselves standing on a, a stage? That takes know, a lot of courage. You know, <laughs> um, being asked if comedians were the class clown is probably the most common question that we get asked. You know, we all cracking kids up in school and, and in actual fact, a lot of us have a similar kind of upbringing where like I know for myself, I was bullied incessantly when I was a kid and you know you'll find a lot of comedians have a similar sort of um you know not traumatic but a, a, a tough upbringing in that way and so for me personally like i learned pretty early on that if i made the other kids laugh they wouldn't they would leave me alone they would pick on like they wouldn't pick on me i was kind of a novelty but i never in my wildest dreams thought about being a comedian so i left school when i was 14 worked on the tools as a welder for four or five years uh, and then ended up in the building industry as a sales rep. Uh, and it wasn't until I was 27 that um, I had this kind of uh, premature midlife crisis at 27 thinking I had a, I had a beautiful life, I had a great job. I was with a lovely lady. We had a nice house and, but I was desperately unhappy because mm. I knew that my life was, something other than that i didn't know what it was what it was but i just knew it was something other than that so mm. um so i you know left left that lady that i was i was dating at the time and and went and did some soul searching and i thought i always wanted to be an actor hmm. so um i did a bit of investigating and we've got a quite prestigious acting school in brisbane uh in queensland in australia so i auditioned for that um, they took 14 people twice a year. So I got in uh, with my audition and then uh, moved closer to the city to go to acting school, you know, three nights a week and all day Saturday. And at this time, I was also, you know, still working as a sales rep in the building industry. And I, you know, was doing part time stuff in like the state emergency service, which is like a voluntary uh, rescue organization that we have here in Australia for you know, tarping roofs from storms and floods and all that sort of stuff. Um, and about six months into the acting course, they put on like a cabaret show for all the students to perform in for all their friends and family, you know, just like a, an, an introduction into it kind of thing. And, and I remember looking at the running order going, There's, it's all drama, there's no comedy, you know, and, and the guy organising it said, oh, do you want to get up and tell a few jokes, do you, mate? And, uh, and, 
and I was telling jokes on building sites to get customers and, you know, so I went, yeah, all right, I don't care, whatever. So, um, so I remember the date specifically, it was April 26, 1998. I walked on stage in this little community hall uh, in front of about 90 people on a Sunday night. I did 10 minutes of like stand up, just telling a couple of stories, old jokes, whatever. Uh, and then the Wednesday night, three days later, I go into the acting school and in the foyer, as you walk in, they've got all the, the arty black and white photos of the students performing from the Sunday night. And there's a photo of me standing there holding a microphone, uh, which I actually still have in my office. Uh, <laughs> And I'm standing there looking at this photo going, how funny is that? I look like a comedian in that photo, right? And then the dean of the acting school comes out and he goes, in my office, I want to speak to you. And I think I'm in trouble, right? I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, no, I've offended someone. I've done something wrong. And I walked in and, he, and the dean said, he goes, when you auditioned for the acting school, you never mentioned anything about being a comedian. How long you been doing stand-up for? And I, I said, three days? Yeah. I, said, I said, that was the first time I've ever done that. And oh, he, wow. said, well, he said, well, that's your thing. That is clearly your thing. So oh, wow. he said, stick with the acting course because it will help you as a comedian, but you need to start doing that. So I went, sure, no worries. So I started doing open mic rooms and, you know, going through the process of and doing all that. And then three and a half years later, when I graduated from the acting school, you know, after having just done Shakespeare and all of that, um, <laughs> I was getting work around Australia as, as a support act, you know, like a 20 minute middle support act. And so at the age of 31, um, I quit my full-time job after having never been unemployed since I was 15, mm. I quit my full-time job to, uh, to pursue a career as a comedian. And, wow. and all of my friends were buying houses and having babies. <laughs> and, and I was like, nah. And, uh, you know, so I had a part-time job, you know, to, to help. It was probably about seven years in that um, I was able to, quit my part-time job and fully so basically stand-up comedy has been my primary source of income for I don't know probably the best part of like 15 years now oh that's incredible <laughs> okay first of all how do you get the courage or does it are you, are you even nervous when you go up front I mean honestly the thought of trying to make someone laugh because they're expecting to laugh <laughs> well <laughs> you know when you first start out, you're incredible. And, and look, there's times where um, there's a lot of pressure on the gig, you know, mm -hmm. like it's a high pressure situation or um, the circumstances might be working against you, you know, like the lighting not, might not be great. There's, you know, they're seated incorrectly, like there's a, the sound's not that good. So there's certain things that I know are going to make my job harder, which, mm -hmm. which makes me nervous. But, mm -hmm. you know, once you get to the point where I'm at and a lot of guys that have been doing it for as long as I have, so it's like 22, 23 years now, um, 
you know, I did have, I have had a hiatus for a year and a half, uh, thanks to COVID or, um, you know, which really, you know, devastated our industry. Uh, yeah, and, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I've got about two and a half hours worth of material floating around up here, you know, so two and a half hours worth of stuff to, to draw on, to talk about. And I'm only mm. ever really on stage for between half an hour and, and 40 or 50 minutes. So I know what I'm capable of when I get up there. It's just the circumstances can make you nervous because you go, oh, this is a bit going to be tough. I, I am a true believer. I think that humor works in so many ways. I think physicians should employ humor. It helps patients open up, build relationships, trust, all that amazing stuff. So what do you do with someone? Like, how do you read an audience? Like, how do you know, like, the pause and the when to drop the line? Like, how do you, is it just something you develop over time or are there clues? <laughs> well, uh, to start with, on your first point, I totally agree with uh, physicians uh, and especially people in the mental health space as well, mm. uh, using humour. Um, I know a lot of the studies that I've done talk about humour, the use of humour as a means of uh, enhancing the therapeutic alliance between the clinician and the client, which is incredibly important. Um, but once again, there's that balance, you know, like mm -hmm. of, of being able to use it appropriately. And it's right. not a case of, you know, you're not expecting your, your doctors or your psychologists to be cracking jokes, but mm -hmm. at the same time, using humor as a humanistic way of, of forging that relationship. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I totally agree. It's very important in, in the medical field. Mm -hmm. um, but in relation to reading an audience, uh, look, a lot of the time, um, I, it wasn't until a mate of mine brought this up one day. He said, it's like fishing. If you've ever been fishing, right, mm -hmm. and you have different bait, you might have worms, you might have prawn, you know, squid, you might have shrimp, whatever. And, and our material is like the bait, mm. right? So we're on stage and I might throw out some material about reality TV shows, right? And if the audience bite and they love it and they laugh, I go, right, I've got 10 minutes on that. So I'll keep going. Mm. And if they're like, not really into that, I go, right, I need to change that bait, talk about relation. One of the, one of the, one of the easiest topics for a comedian to unite an audience is to talk about relationships. Mm. Because instantly, you're, you're, you're talking about a topic that strikes a chord with everybody in the room like mm -hmm. that and and it's it's like a go-to which relationships like parental yeah, it, no the relationships between men and women women oh well they yes, of course there's wonderful you know, things to make fun of there <laughs> like like it's and the differences between men and women and people are in a relationship they're at a relationship they're they're happy they're not happy there's oh. you know being single not being single having kids you know like one of the easiest ways to get a laugh is i say like yesterday afternoon i did a um mental health presentation for 300 accountants okay. right okay okay and, and the guy before me spent 50 minutes giving a talk about um audits so they were nodding off 
when I got on stage. And one of the easiest ways to get a laugh is you say to the audience, give us a yeah uh, if you've got kids, right? And then, you know, people go, yeah. And then you go, give us a yeah if you don't have kids. And nine times out of 10, the people that don't have kids are going to go, yeah, woohoo, you know? And it's like, you just say to the audience, who sounds happier? Who sounds like they've got more time? Who sounds like they've got more money? Who sounds like they're more relaxed? Yes, especially that money part. (laughs) (laughs) That one, yeah, man, I'm telling you, just doling out the dollars. They go in, they go out, and they leave more than they came in. (laughs) Yeah, you know, Um, so... That is that is fabulous. I, I totally get that. I think that's amazing. And you know, I do. I am curious because you watch comedians, and I and I really enjoy. I just think it's fabulous. How do you deal with hecklers, though? Like that one, just like. Well, this is the thing: is um, a true heckle is quite rare really right because there's a difference um if you're on stage and you're you know doing your material or whatever and you have someone yell something out that they think is funny Mm. right that's not really Mm -hmm. being heckled a true heckle is someone in the audience going you're rubbish get off when's the comedian coming on next that's being heckled okay so how do you deal with that well, luckily, I, you know, if you're doing your job and you're good at what you do, you you don't really get that. You know, okay. what you get is people that are drunk that want to contribute to the show. And, you know, sometimes if it's funny, you use it. You go, oh, mate, that was fantastic. I never thought about it that way. Well done. You should write all my material. Anyway, we're talking about this, right? And then that person sits there amongst their group and goes, See that comedian said I was funny. How good's that? So, and they and they usually just sit there and be quiet after that. Either that, or they've had a little bit too much to drink, and they think I'm on a roll here, right? And they try and can they try and interrupt a second time, oh, and man. it's never as funny as the first. So then you can say, "Look, you had your moment. Clearly, you peaked too early." You know, you had a go, but clearly comedy is, it's not as easy as it looks, mate, is it? But you had a go. I think maybe now, you know, I got the microphone. while you're ahead. Yeah. Um, Or what happens is if you've got a big group of people and you've got one table that, and look, I hate, I'm I'm, as much as um, I know this may seem incredibly, um, I don't know if the word's judgmental or whatever, but I would rather have five bucks nights in an audience than one hen's night. Okay, you're going to have to translate that to an American English because I don't know. Okay, so, um, (laughs) right, so the bucks nights is the group of guys getting together before they get married and it's a a men's night out. Okay. Okay. Right? And the hens uh-huh. night is all of the okay. girls going out with the bride. The hens and the bucks. And so why does a guy get to be called a buck and we're called hens? Like chicken? I don't know. Maybe that's that's clearly the Australian. What is what is 
What is the a bachelor equivalent and a over bachelorette? There? It's a bachelor okay. party and a bachelorette party. There you go. Right. So <laughs> I would rather have five bachelor parties than one bachelorette party. Really? Tell us why as women are so difficult. <laughs> because when they well, this is the thing is it's when they're all drinking, they're they're mm. there to catch up. They're there to have a catch up with all their girlfriends and and it's, you know, some one person had the idea, let's go to a comedy club, not realizing that they've got to sit there and be quiet during the show, you know? And, and it's like, they, they just want to have a good time. They, you know, like, it's not a good idea going to a comedy club for that. So a lot of the time, you know, you might have, and they're, they're, they're drinking and they're talking amongst themselves and that's disrupting all of the people around them. Right. And it's like, and you end up saying to them, you know, look, I realize you're having a good time, but if you want to have this conversation, you've got to go outside because at the moment Mm. you're spoiling it for everyone around you who Mm. is trying to watch the show. What do you reckon folks? And then all you have to do is say, what do you reckon folks? And the rest of the audience gives you a round of applause or goes, yeah. And then it's like, I haven't spoken. The audience has spoken. Mm. if that makes sense oh yeah a little peer pressure goes a long way for sure yeah. <laughs> you know? but it can it can backfire on you you know like sometimes i've done that and there's and the, a fight's broken out amongst the audience because someone's given someone else a hard time and it's just like i'm on stage going well i'm just going to stand back and watch this now oh boy there could be lots of ways that could go <laughs> there's never a dull moment that's all i have to say is there's yeah. never a dull moment Man, I mean, I mean, it's hard enough being a physician, but I can't imagine in front of lots of people. I mean, I've given speeches, I've done all sorts of things, and I feel like humor can definitely make people pay attention. So what do you do with, have you coached others to do this type of work, or what do you do from that standpoint when you have someone asking for advice? Yeah, have you had anyone ask you for advice or or even being more humorous? Uh. Oh, look, there's some friends of mine that specifically run stand-up comedy courses, right? Yeah, and so you can go and do a like a a three-week course, which is like might be four hours every Saturday. And then, and at the end of the course, the graduation is a show, you know, that that all the students put on. Um, So there's friends of mine that specifically do that, but... I was very fortunate when I came through, I came through at a time in the comedy industry in Australia that was very uh, nurturing of new comics. You know, Mm. there was, there was no YouTube, there was no social media. It was your time on stage in the club. That was it. And so everyone was on tour all around the Mm. country constantly. So, you know, uh, headline acts from Sydney and Melbourne would come to Brisbane where I was based and they'd do a show and I would sit there and and as a new comedian I would watch the whole I'd do my five minutes at the start but then I'd watch the headliners and go wow that's the level that's that's the level mm-hmm. that you've got to be at if you want to do this mm-hmm. and and so what would happen is those headliners would come through and you know, they'd see guys like myself and a couple of others and they go, you know, you, you, you know, you 
you're getting there. You're really doing well at this, you know, like I'll mention your name down in Sydney or Melbourne. Um, and that's how I started touring around Australia. So, so now as a professional comedian, when I host, we have uh, what's called open mic nights, which mm -hmm. is basically they have a professional comedian as the MC and then it's all uh, new guys and girls starting out and they each do five minutes and, and you're doing it for free. Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of time when I'm hosting those shows, uh, yeah, you know, like they all know me. So they're happy to ask me questions or I'm happy to, you know, if they're open to it, I go, look, you know, maybe you could do this or try that or whatever. And, and so, yeah, I'm a big fan of trying to nurture the, the new guys coming through because with, without the um, mentoring that I got, you know, mm. like I went from, you know, being brand new, open mic, doing five minutes to, to headlining the major comedy clubs in about, uh, I think it was about four years. Mm, that's amazing. So what is some of the, the biggest mistakes you see the new comedians making that maybe they should think about? <laughs> they perform to each other. Oh, they perform. So you've got an open mic night. So there'll be 12 new comedians. And they all know each other. They've got their little groups and um, they're trying to be, uh, it's, it's strange. There's this new wave of comedians coming through in Australia that they all want to be controversial. You know, mm. they've seen the success of Jim Jeffries and Bill Burr and all of these, you know, controversial comics, Ricky Gervais, and, and that's what they want to do shock the audience into laughing and and so they're doing the material and they're seeing the other open mic comedians laugh you know mm. all their mates but what they're not seeing is that the audience isn't laughing mm. they're offending some of them you know and i've said to them you you know you need to forget about what all your mates think is funny and concentrate on what the audience thinks is funny because that's how you're going to make a career out of this. You, you're not going to make a career out of entertaining the other comedians. You need to make a career out of entertaining the audience right. because they're the ones that are going to decide whether or not you're going to be a professional at this or not. Hmm. So what was it do you think that your dean of acting saw this? Like this is your thing because you were so new at it and have you seen others do that like you're like wow okay that's they've got this is it a natural talent just this innate ability to read people what would it what was it yeah I think it's a um I think it would be a, a visibly comfortable person on stage in front of an audience mm. so you can take away the nerves of actually doing that to start with, because we all know it's, you know, quite famous quote by Seinfeld where Jerry talks about the fact that public speaking is the biggest fear of humankind and death is number two, you know, so at a funeral, you'd rather be in the coffin than given the eulogy. And it's right. like, so most people have that fear of, just being up there to start with. So mm. if you can stand on stage in front of an audience and be comfortable mm. and not nervous and 
and it's it's a manner you know like it's a mm-hmm. conversational there's a big difference between um talking to people and talking at people if mm-hmm. if that makes sense mm-hmm. having Can you a, describe that a little bit more like what that well means? you we all enjoy watching comedians that have a really conversational manner mm-hmm. you know like it just feels like they're talking to a heap of their friends in their lounge room it's just a natural kind of thing it's not it doesn't feel like a, a sh- it doesn't feel like a show but you're watching a show mm. okay. it's hard to it's hard to put into words that one laurie I, you know well, it's a great question though i've never been asked that question it's a great question well i'm glad it's a good question i tried i try to make these interviews kind of like that very conversational like we forget we're actually interviewing we're just talking but you know it's funny I've seen the very first comedian I saw was Seinfeld when I was in college and he was funny but you know who was even made me laugh till I was crying was Bill Cosby and you know he was not that I agree with his life after I you know you hear these yeah um but he was talking about and I remember I can't remember how old I was but I was still a young adult and he was talking about his time in the dental chair (laughs) <laughs> and how, and I had spent years in braces and multiple, you know, you, you remember being numbed and your face really like it's sliding off. And he was talking about, and then the, the spit, between, you know, they tell you to spit and they ask you, I was laughing so hard because I can relate to it yeah. year after year. And I feel like it's that relatability that really makes for me anyway, want to come back and watch more because it's just, it's just like, oh my gosh, he's right in. A, I guess that's the where the relationship component is, where that's why it's the easy thing. Yeah, it's relatable. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like absolutely. if you talk about, um, see, I personally uh, choose not to talk about uh, politi- politics mm. or anything that's really in the news. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because when I'm on stage, I feel as though I want the audience to have a break from all of that. Mm. I want Mm. them to have a break from the news and their job and their stress and their mortgage and, and every other thing else, and just come and look at the world in through my eyes for half an hour or so. Mm -hmm. Um, But having said that some really close friends of mine, that's all they do is political Mm. humor and, and talk about, you know topical stuff that's in the news and and which is equally as important that there are comedians out there you know talking about that stuff it's just that i choose not to do it but they do and they do it really well and it's equally as important i i feel yeah no i think it is important but but i think there's i see two genres there right because i see like just from my just from the audience side of things i'm not a comedian or anything but the ones that speak to the pol- the political side of things, they actually educate you in yeah. their conversation with you. Whereas the ones who do more general, John, like I agree, I feel like you have to be in the mood for that. Like you are searching for the political yep. context versus I just want to go out and forget about COVID yeah. and forget about everything, which I feel like you have a wider audience. Do you feel like that's the case? Because everybody would want to be at that point. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and- and the uh, because that's a, like it's it's more broadly entertaining. Mm-hmm. 
you know, yeah. as opposed to, you know, some people really that that's the type of humor they enjoy is political satire. That's, that's their bag, you mm-hmm. know? Mm, absolutely that is really interesting because uh we had watched um I can't remember the gentleman's name at the point but there's he has this thing on netflix and he's quite controversial my husband's like oh we should watch it i'm like mm. <laughs> so we watched like 10 minutes i was like is this really funny to you <laughs> he's he's laughing but it's that uncomfortable laugh like i'm laughing because i can't believe you just said that type laugh versus i'm truly being humored and so i was like so i'm gonna leave now <laughs> did do you and your husband uh fully share the same sense of humor do you believe no 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 he will no? say things and do things that i'm just like patrick really <laughs> and and the kids you know the boys are funny my daughter's much more like me and the boys think it's funny and i'm gonna say like, is this a male female thing because i am truly not entertained here you know <laughs> and i i seem to be the butt of a lot of jokes i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing i just maybe because i take it or maybe they get a rise out of me i don't know <laughs> yeah right but not real i mean there's some things that we absolutely do like parenting good lord after this many years of being a parent it's all funny to me at this point i'm just surprised means we survived <laughs> but there must but, have been a, there must have been a point when you started dating you know like you've obviously been together for a long time yeah almost that, 30 years yeah well congratulations that's quite yeah, the achievement it um, is you know mm-hmm. so there must have been a time early on where you just Did felt I? so in sync that you, you you laughed at the same sort of things did I ever feel he was funny? I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, Patrick is an engineer. Maybe it's like one of those accountant things. <laughs> is he, will he be watching this, by the way? <laughs> and he's fully, <laughs> um, you know, no, he is funny. Like he's, uh, he likes, I don't know. He's just one of the, just one of the nicest people you'll meet. And then there's some things that you do, he just says, you're just like, I can't believe you just said that. And you got to laugh because he's like, I don't know how to describe it, but I do adore him and love him, obviously. But he was my first boyfriend. We were like, I was 19. <laughs> I was like, wow. so, you know, what it was that was really um, outside of humor it was someone who was really uh, cared for you, right? He just really listened. And I feel like that is such a, a unique trait in a human, just out even yeah. outside of humor. So, um, but yeah, no, th- that I, that I cherish. So in his, uh, he cares for deeply for his relationship. So that, that's, that's more of the respect there but um but yeah but the the joking thing boy there's there's this family you got we got some issues but <laughs> um yeah. anyway the, how how do you mind me asking just Uh-oh. quickly it's only t- slightly off topic but um because when uh when clint suggested that um he introduce yes. us yeah. Uh, I will admit I Googled you oh, um, <laughs> because I was like, I was like, well, who am I going to be talking to? Um, right, right. And uh, so I'm just curious, how, how long away, uh, like separated in your relationship were you when you were in the uh, defense force? Oh, in the military. Oh, so yeah. he was active duty as well at different times. So we've spent oh, okay. a part. Oh gosh. Um, let me think here that at the most, uh, almost five months at one no. time. And yep. there were multiple of those. Um, and so, and honestly, being a physician, and so I started medical school with three little kids. So there were five, three and 10 months when I went back to medical school. Wow. And um, so we, we didn't spend a lot of time as a family unit. We spent a lot of time. He, he drove a hundred miles one way, each way also those first two years. So um, things got a little 
crazy, but uh, yeah. So we spent a lot of time apart, actually. Yeah. So when you look back, when you look back at that time apart, yeah. Do you feel as though you were still able to share laughter with him when you did oh, communicate? Yeah. I think so. Um, yeah, absolutely. Or it was just always, <laughs> I was always trying to put out fires, you know, because for oh, God bless him. He, I, when I was deployed, <laughs> I left him with, how old was Emily? 13 female, 13 year old female, an 11 year old boy and a nine year old boy. And his two parents lived with us. <laughs> you know, and- you know what? I want to, I want to interview that guy. <laughs> Can you tee that up? Cause I really, I really want to interview that guy. He's, he has going to have some pearls of wisdom. Well, there's a reason he's balding and gray and white hair. Um, you know, what was funny though, is I planned everything. I'm a planner. I'm not a procrastinator. And we talked about this. Actually, we, we actually make fun of him playing pickleball all the time. He's what, 50, how old is he now? He's almost 52 and um, playing pickleball. And so we joke around, he takes the jokes for you. But you know what I did is I planned everything because I knew I'd be gone over the holidays. So I ordered... Christmas because he was not going to do the Santa thing because I couldn't rely on him to do the Santa thing so you know what he does <laughs> I order all this stuff for the kids and I message him I was like please wrap these up this is their Santa gifts all he does is he he <laughs> there from Amazon he throws them under the tree completely unwrapped in one box <laughs> and my kids still talk about this like mom you remember that Christmas of 2007 when dad just threw everything under the tree I'm like, oh my god! Those things that we laugh about is like, I can't believe that just you just did that or said that. Well, that that is that is kudos to you. Kudos to you. There's lots of humor (laughs) and making fun of us. Maybe that's it. I feel like the as for me as a physician, and maybe you can tell me if someone who's looking to bring more humor into the relationship, being professional or personal what is the easiest inroads like what is is it the relationship topic again for me it's just making fun of things I've said or done it's really easy to make fun of me because I do plenty of those things so and I'm fine with it (laughs) so what what is what works do you think for most people (laughs) well when I'm when I'm doing my laughter clinic presentation at the end of the presentation when I'm going into some you know tools and strategies that people can use in their personal and professional lives. I think one of the most important questions that you could ask yourself for those playing at home Mm -hmm. is what makes me laugh? Right? That's a good one, yeah. That is is probably the most important place you need to start. What is it that makes me laugh? Because it will be it will be different for everybody. Like I, I said this yesterday, I had 300 people at this conference. I said, what makes everyone laugh in this room will be different because your sense of humor is so unique to you. And it is a calm, your sense of humor today is a culmination of your entire life leading up to this moment, what you find funny. You know, and there might be things you find funny now that you didn't 10 years ago, or there Mm. might be things that you didn't laugh at 20 years ago that now you think are hilarious, Mm. you know, and, and, uh, and the, the easiest way to prove that everyone's sense of humor is so different. So I do a lot of work with the first responders, the police, the paramedics, 
the uh, firefighters, return service people, prison guards. And I can tell you now what makes a police officer or a paramedic laugh is most likely going to offend a primary school teacher. I was going to say, yes, you know? yes, it and, would. <laughs> and I say, does that make it wrong? Absolutely not, because mm. they are using uh, what's called self-enhancing style of humour mm. as a psychological coping mechanism to build resilience in the face of trauma. And in, in psychological terms, using humour in that way is classified as like a level four mature coping mechanism. It's one of the most powerful tools to overcome stress is to be able to mm. find the humour in a situation. Mm. So asking yourself, what makes me laugh is a fantastic place to start mm. because, you know, you've just shown that between you and Patrick, you know, like what makes you laugh <laughs> You know, you know, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, what he was thinking when he put all of those presents in that You're thinking, box. thank God my wife ordered this because I wasn't thinking about it. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, like I was thinking, well, I'm, oh. I'm, I'm, I'd love to know whether or not he was thinking in the back of his mind, am I going to get away with this? Is she going to think this is funny? Are we going to talk about, you know, like he might be a planner himself. He might, th- no. he might have thought, you know what, we are going to no, be no, talking no. about, we are going to be talking about this event in our 80s and you know what and you know what you're welcome is what he might be thinking (laughs) okay I gotta tell you first of all this is great there's so many things I want to talk to you about so first of all I love this what makes me laugh I'm going to start asking my patients asking them what makes you laugh because I have so many patients that are you know dealing with all sorts of stuff Thank you for that. That's Jim. And I want to get back to that in a second, but I will have to say this one quick story. There is something that we've been talking about for almost 30 years that Patrick did. Okay. I'm just going to make fun of Patty. He's going <laughs> to, we went on our honeymoon in 1993. Okay. We were very like just graduated college. His parents paid for a trip to Hawaii and we go out and on these little boogie boards in the Pacific ocean. I grew up in the desert in a family with no money. So this was amazing to me. And we get out there, we're, we're, you know, swimming around and I'm thinking this is the coolest thing ever, maybe 200 yards offshore. And suddenly there's this school of fish that just come flying out of the ocean. And then I'm like, wow, check it out. That's so cool. Did you see that? Cause I'm like looking and I didn't hear anything. So I turn around and he's halfway back to shore and I'm like, what's going on? I was like, did he get hurt or something? So I start swimming back and I come back and he goes, well, where there's a school of fish, there are sharks. And I was like, so you left your, I don't know, I've been your wife for like a week. (laughs) Out there is shark bait? (laughs) And your honeymoon as well. (laughs) Anyway, I will tell you, there are so many of the stories. So now you can see. Anyway, it started off with a bang and it continues. So that's a that's a cracking story. That um, one. Oh my God, that's that is that's just one of many. But anyway, so those are the kind of stories that I like to tell. Most I guess maybe I make more fun of Pat than myself. But but getting back to what makes, what me, makes laugh. me laugh. Exactly. And which brings us because you mentioned the laughter clinic, which I first think that's just a brilliant idea because like I'd mentioned before we started as a physician um, we have one of the highest suicide rates because at least in the United States we have laws and there's rules for example to be licensed I am licensed in all 50 states in the United States each one of those 
boards, medical boards will ask you when you go to renew your license, either annually or every other year, have you sought um, mental health treatment? Are you being treated for a mental health condition? And so it really discourages professionals from reaching out for help when they need it. And this is a very stressful job, especially those who are in ERs and in critical care units. And so, which is really discouraging and frustrating for us. And we don't do a very good job of standing up together as physicians, we're very bad at that. <laughs> so, um, which is amazing. And then as in the military, of course, there's a high suicide rate as well. And so I'm just really curious to see how you use this as a tool to help fight and combat suicide, like you had mentioned on your websites and different things. But how do you go from a stand-up comedian to prescribing laughter as a treatment and prevention, primary prevention? Well, I'm glad you asked because this is a story that I, you know, this is a chance encounter that changed my, the entire course of my life. Um, and, you know, I used to do a lot of shows on cruise ships, which was a great gig. You know, I'd mm. do a late night one hour show in a thousand seat theatre. Um, and this, this encounter happened in 2012 and I'd done the show and I was just sitting at the bar, you know, watching people file out of the theatre and, and this couple came towards me, pretty fit looking, mid to late thirties. And, and um, the, the wife's crying and I'm thinking, what, what's happening here? And, and it, it, I tell you, it gives me goosebumps. It takes me back every time I tell this story. And she came up to me and she wrapped her arms around me. And she said, I don't know how I can possibly thank you because I have not seen my husband laugh out loud for three years. Oh, wow. And like, think about three years, you know, mm -hmm. and comedians, <clears throat> you know, we get it a lot after shows, people coming up to you going, I needed that. I haven't laughed in days or weeks. or I've had a stressful week or I've got things going on. But three years, I was like, how... Mm -hmm. How is that even possible? Mm. So I talked to this couple for hours into the middle of the night. And, you know, you'll relate to this. This guy turned out he was an ex-SAS uh, soldier mm -hmm. who three years previously was uh, on deployment in Afghanistan. He kicked open. He was doing a patrol. He kicked open a door. It was booby-trapped and it blew him up and it mm. killed one of his guys and 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 injured him so he couldn't actively serve anymore and and so here's this guy standing in front of me going mate you have done more for me in one night than three years of post-traumatic stress management and medications and every other thing else because you just made me laugh for an hour mm, you know that's incredible and and I, I will say I was pretty funny that night right <laughs> I was on well fire, deserved. right? Um, well, obviously and, the universe was aligning you up to be. Somebody. Yeah, and and his wife was the one that really brought it to my attention because she was annoyed at the fact that she she said, "Why is it that for the last three years the people looking after my husband's rehabilitation at mm -hmm. no point had said to him, are you still able to laugh?'" You know, are you still, do you still have your access to humor, you know? Wow. And so it really, really sat with me this, this, because in, 
in her eyes, I'd given her her husband back. Mm -hmm. It was such an emotional night. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget it. Um, you know, and so I got off the cruise ship and I started to think, you know, maybe there's more to being a comedian than just doing shows. So I started looking at that old chestnut laughter is the best medicine. And I thought, why is, why did, where did that saying come from? Why is that? What does humor do? Laughter to the body. And then that led me to the rates of stress, anxiety, and depression. And then that led me to investigating, you know, the rates of suicide and, and, and attempted suicide. And, and in Australia, obviously our um, population size is very different to that of the United States. So, mm -hmm. so in Australia, we uh, average around 3,000 to 3,300 uh, people a year die by suicide, which is uh, double the road toll in our country. Wow. And um, so it equates to around eight to nine people a day. Oh and, and the research shows, and this, this next statistic is a global statistic that for every one person who dies by suicide, around 25 people have attempted it. Mm. So, so in Australia, that means we have over 65,000 people a year attempting to end their own life. And mm. to me, I was like, this is, this is an incredible problem in society that I just happened to work in an industry that could have a positive impact on this. So, um, and this was, this all happened at a time when I personally was coming out of a 15 year battle with depression myself, you know, mm -hmm. like I'd been on and off medications in and out of different psychologists. And, and, and it was at the exact same time that I had the right support network. You know, we, we talk about the importance of having a support network. Well, I had, I'd, I'd struck gold in the fact that I had a wonderful GP who knew the perfect psychologist for me who knew the perfect psychiatrist they all worked together and knew each other um mm. i'd met this other guy who was uh who turned into a business mentor um and and so my three health professionals said look we're we're going to help you but it's not going to be overnight commit to what we want for two years you know mm. give us two years to change everything for you so i did that and um and the change was incredible. So, and my business mentor said, this idea of using humor and laughter to combat stress and anxiety and depression is fantastic. You need to get a university on board to do research. That's how things happen. So mm. uh, we're very lucky in Brisbane, in Queensland, Australia, we have the Australian Institute for Suicide Research and Prevention uh, at Griffith University. And this is one of five places in the world that is on the World Health Organization Collaborating Committee for Suicide wow. Prevention. Wow. So I went in there, told them my story and what I wanted to do. Um, they said, look, we think there's totally something to be said for what you want to do in relation to using this for suicide prevention. We think you should come and study this master's degree in suicidology. And, and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I didn't really think much of it. And then they sent me all the application forms and I looked at it and I went, this is a postgraduate course. You've got to have a degree in something to qualify, you know? And, and I rang them up and I said, I'm flattered, but I'm not your guy. You know, like I, I uh, left school when I was 14, didn't even finish high school, worked on the tools. So, 
and let alone never went to university. I said, so I'm, you know, I don't qualify for this. And to their credit, and I didn't realise that they could do this, it still blows me away that they went, well, you know what? We are going to recognise prior learn you for 17 years of being a comedian. That's awesome. That we believe you have something to offer the field of suicide prevention. Absolutely. So you're in. So at the age of 45, Laurie, <laughs> I started university at a postgraduate level, at a oh master's gosh. degree level. That's and awesome. it wasn't a learning curve. It was a learning wall, you know, <laughs> because like I was, you know, I had to learn about the academic style of like everything that everyone had learned doing a degree. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that. Oh, so. Man. My first six months, oh, we still laugh at my first assignment because I stupidly <laughs> thought they were interested in what I had to say. You know? <laughs> and, and my senior lecturer goes, uh, there's a thing called referencing champ. <laughs> <laughs> so, but there's two things that I'm incredibly proud of in my life. And one is that um, in the second year of that master's degree, I turned everything around to the point where at the end of the second year I got an award called the Griffith Award for Academic Excellence because I had a grade point average of over six for the entire year that put me in the top five percent of all students. That's incredible. That speaks volumes. Yes. And and that I finished it, you know, like I I completed the master's degree. I I ran a, I designed a five-week human laughter education program for people with stress, anxiety, and depression. I I managed to um, put together a pilot study, which Mm. took me about six months to get ethical ethics approval to to Mm. make that happen. But I did it, and and so yes, I graduated with this master's of suicidology, which is um, quite a rare qualification and now Mm. and that's what led me to you know doing the laughter clinic keynote presentations and workshops and and the five-week human laughter program but the um i gotta tell you it's so many times people read my bio and they go so you're a comedian but you talk about suicide (laughs) how does that work (laughs) Yeah. How does that work? What do you do? So when you're going into like, where do you, what is the application of the work they do? I can kind of see it from my standpoint as a physician and. So, okay. So to give you, to give you a quick example. So yes, afternoon, I did a laughter clinic, one hour keynote presentation for 300 accountants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was the last plenary speaker of a three day conference. Right. So the presentation basically starts with me going on stage and it's all you know I give them that story about how it is that I came to be here and then I talk about self-care is so incredibly important because in the field of suicide prevention as you would very well know being a physician early intervention is everything Mm -hmm. early intervention is everything you know too many times we my wife has a fantastic saying that she believes that a lot of the suicide prevention is the equivalent of putting the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. 
Mm. You know, when in actual fact, I don't want to put the ambulance at the top of the cliff. I want to put it over here. So people aren't even walking to the cliff in the first place. Right. So my laughter clinic focuses on self-care. I bring up a photo of the oxygen mask on a plane, you know, that one that drops down. I go, remember what they ask you to do with this. Put it on yourself first before helping others. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is you're no use to anyone if you're suffocating. And our life is exactly the same, right? Mm -hmm. But too often we're all busy and self-care gets shuffled to the bottom of the to-do list because we're trying to do things for everybody else. When Mm -hmm. in actual fact, if we want to be the best for everyone else, we've got to focus on self-care and not have it be viewed as being selfish. Mm. you know so uh and i say to the audience everything that i'm talking about is nothing new i'm not reinventing the wheel so i say i've got four reminders that if you remind yourself about these four things at the center of it is psychological well-being so those reminders are that there are things in your life that make you happy there are things in your life to be grateful for there are things in your life to look forward to And there are things in your life that make you laugh, Mm. right? And so I say top five things that make you happy, right? And I go out into the audience, stand up, how you going, what's your name? Five things that make you happy. Three things that you're grateful for, right? What are you looking forward to in the next two days, in the next two weeks, in the next two months? Talk to me, right? And then what makes, and there are things in your life that make you laugh. So then I give them 10 minutes of stand up in the middle of the, Mm in the middle of the uh, presentation, get them all laughing. And then at the end of that, at the end of the 10 minutes, I go, right now, stop and, and, and just pay attention to how you're feeling right now after just having had a laugh for 10 minutes. This mm-hmm. is what's happening to you physically, psychologically. These are the tools. What make, you know, ask yourself, what makes me laugh? How can you bring more laughter into your life? How can you bring more laughter into the lives of those around you? Being mindful that, we all know people in our in our circle of family and friends that share the same sense of humor as us you know we know people that we can laugh with and we know people that you know wouldn't find that funny so mm-hmm. it's about being mindful and smart and and we talk about the the four different styles of humor the aggressive self-defeating laughing at the expense of someone else or yourself or you know so we unpack mm-hmm. all of that as well. So that's wow. that's the laughter clinic in a nutshell. That sounds incredible. Like, how do I sign up? <laughs> that sounds amazing. Well, so well you, you know, like I'd this? like to come. I'd like to come over there at some point and do some lectures. Would be quite nice if anyone's willing to uh, sponsor me. Well, I will tell you. I think this is. I do have some ideas for you when we're done here that might might prove fruitful so <laughs> you know what and this is and this is one of the things that i think is really cool is the fact that going to uni if if anything else came out of me going to university it was the importance of research mm. and and as a professional health professional you would totally understand and and especially with a plant-based diet as well you know that's mm-hmm. all about research oh my you, you know mm-hmm. so um and that's what I say to the audience. I go, this whole thing about laughter is the best medicine. To me personally, I think that saying only tells half the story. 
Mm. I think that saying should be changed to human laughter are the best medicines because Mm. you've got the physical benefits of laughing, Mm -hmm. increased blood flow and, you know, stress hormones decreasing and all that. But the psychological benefits of using your sense of humor as a construct to create the laughter is the important bit. It's the really important bit. And so this is what I say to the audiences is that this isn't any airy, fairy, you know, hippie stuff. This has been widely researched around the world for decades. Mm. You know, the research to come out of the United States alone in this field Mm. is incredible. The research where they've, you know... I've read research papers where they go, do depressed patients still have access to their sense of humour? Yes, they do. They just laugh at different things. You know, humour therapy for patients on dialysis, cancer patients with humour therapy. Like, there is tons of it. Mm. So is there a laughter medical journal? (laughs) Where can I find uh, all the data? Like, where where would you uh, encourage someone like myself? Because I do lifestyle medicine, right? So we're, we're talking about incorporating healthy habits of sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, community building, always with patients. And where would we go to, to learn how to do this or move forward in using what tools we can to help others? <laughs> well, I know down in this part of the world, we have the Australasian Human Studies Network, which is kind of a bit of a closed group, but the it's so easily accessible you know like you could do I know pretty much anybody has access to um, documents on Google Scholar or Mm -hmm. any any, Mm -hmm. yeah exactly exactly WebMed and you know you type in health benefits of humor or health benefits of laughter and you know grab a coffee and get comfortable because you're going to be Mm -hmm. sitting there reading for a long time Cool. No, I think that's, I love going down rabbit holes. There's lots of books here and place. It's a mess over here, but <laughs> <laughs> up here on this side of the world, um, it's, 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 a. Uh, I love doing that for patients. And um, so I how, how, are, how is everything going, uh, you know, because one of, one of my things is I, this is really weird. I, before COVID or BC, mm-hmm. I used to, talk about in my human laughter education program um, monitoring your media input Mm. okay because Mm -hmm. the news is very negative prior to COVID you know like for sure and and so and a lot of psychologists that I work with one of the first questions they ask people is well how much news do you are you exposed to you know Mm -hmm. so and, and I used to be quite proud of the fact when I was giving these presentations before COVID where I would say, I have not watched a half hour news bulletin in two and a half years, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I would get my news in the car on the radio because mm-hmm. it's only a couple of minutes and it's no visuals. Mm-hmm. And with social media, something bad happens, you usually find out about it. Mm-hmm. But then when COVID hit and the world just, you know, and I lost eight months worth of work in four days, wow. like a lot of people in my industry, um, I found myself glued to the news, you mm-hmm. know, and even now, like a year and a half, nearly two years in, I'm still watching the news because I don't, uh, you know, very much what's happening in Australia is, 
you know, things can change on a hour to hour basis, let alone, right. let alone day by day. Um, so, but I haven't really seen what's been happening in your neck of the woods for a while now. How, how mm-hmm. are you guys placed over there? <laughs> well, it's like 50 independent countries. Um, so right. <laughs> that's going to be um, difficult. Yeah, it's not exactly easy. So but can you, you know, travel from state to state? Oh, yeah, of course. 100%. That was never not able to do that. We see that's, we where, our con- that's where our country we has really different. fallen down is, yeah. you know, our states have become it's crazy. It is absolutely crazy. And I was wow. thinking, you know, last time I checked, we were all Australians and now I can't travel to another state because of this rule wow. or that rule. But, you know, your country is not alone, but I, I can't even fathom. God bless the human who ever tries to keep an American from going to see other parts of America. That just ain't going to happen. It's just not. We are too big. <laughs> yeah, right. And we are very independently minded. Um but it, what was hard enough was the initial restrictions, shutting down the schools and then the mass mandates. And now, you know, of course, the vaccine, which I think everywhere is suffering, dealing with different belief systems and things. And as a physician, <laughs> especially in the line of work that I do, which I'm, you know, I'm still a physician, I'm an MD, and I'm working with traditional medicine and trying to bit people off of medicine by doing better in their health, but I still use both. And so I'll get patients make an appointment just to tell me, I don't think you should be promoting this or doing that. And I'm like, well, that's fine. I, I tend to look towards science and I'm a big fan of getting out of this pandemic as quickly as possible, at least amount of, <laughs> you know, mm. uh, potential damage. So it, um, it's really interesting. And I, I honestly, there were years we didn't even have a television and I honestly, I didn't watch the news very much even during this pandemic because I just went to scientific resources and was just trying to figure out what my colleagues were doing, what they needed. Um, and uh, doing telemedicine has been very helpful for me. It's kept me out of the fray. But now my daughter is a physician um, and is a you know a resident in family medicine. She's in the thick of it. Um, so I worry about those type of things. But um, yeah, and how I have feel- you noticed your patients? Like how's, what's the yeah. general consensus of the, because I'm assuming that you have your, you know, have- patients that see you from a medical perspective, and then you've got your patients that see you from a, you know, along mm-hmm. the lines of the plant-based health and that sort of, mm-hmm. is that, yeah. is that right? That's two different avenues? Yeah, I have a very, well, I have those who've been on a, a whole food plant-based diet are very healthy. Like I have some stellar, amazingly healthy 85 year old patients, right? There's like, I just want to make sure I'm eating enough vegetables and getting my stuff. And I'm like, oh, this will be easy and delightful. And I'll see you next year. <clears throat> then there's those that most of my patients are actually very ill. Um, they're, you know, they, they start Googling, how do I get rid of, you know, diabetic neuropathy or improve my diabetes, my hypertension, my high cholesterol. I had a heart attack two weeks ago. I had one of those patients yesterday. Um, you know, this is, or I was just diagnosed with cancer. What do I do? And so um, honestly, I, we have such a wide variety of patients talk about stress that I feel like that is stressful because I want to make sure I do right by them and everything and make sure I'm being very careful and not giving them, you can, you don't want to give them false hopes, but also know that I need them to do things to improve their health, even though we may not fully see reversal, but at least we can see some improvement in their health because some cancers are not going to respond, but we can at least make your diabetes better, you know, if you have cancer, or we can make the high blood pressure get better. So, or make your mood better <laughs> with better food choices and things. So there, there's a big variety. And we have patients who are coming from this, who had never heard of 
I lifestyle medicine using plants to get better or, you know, that it was even possible that they could get better versus the others. And so, but the, the interplay between them is the same. They just don't want to suffer. Right. And they just don't want to lose anyone, but they also don't want to be told what to do. They want to be able to make those decisions. That's what the beautiful thing I think about common with my patients is they're very intelligent and they're, um, they're either tired of being, like you said, they don't take care of themselves. Like exactly this morning, I had a patient that says, I'm always taking care of someone else and I need to get better. And I was like, absolutely. You know, she's was a mother and a grandmother and her husband died. And she's like, I'm just tired of being sick. I'm tired of being tired. And so those, I have those, but they've done research and they know there's a better way. So they just want to be given, you know, heaven forbid we actually allow someone to make an independent decision <laughs> and mm. most of the time they make the best decision for themselves and their loved ones which makes most of the time for all humanity i i, I tend to think that there is good a majority of people <laughs> yeah. but we have to treat them as such with respect and so um that's kind of where we're at but we have you know like in colorado um which is a amazing state we have a high vaccination uh rate um but right now we're having some of the highest covid cases and we don't really know why. Um, then we have those like in the Southeast, Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, who didn't vaccinate and had some of the highest rates in the beginning. And that's settling down now. And, but I just think it's just that you're just, we're in different waves, right? Across the country. And we'll all eventually hopefully get down to where the Southeast is. But um, it's just, it's just fascinating. And for me, what's been terrifying is just the people and the responses to one another, it's just utterly. Yeah, it's it's really, you know, mm -hmm. like the crazy thing is, is that in Australia at the moment, we have, mm -hmm. you know, people taking to the streets in mm -hmm. protest about mm -hmm. government mandates and this sort of stuff. And, and, you know, for years, we would sit back and, and you know, in our lounge rooms in Australia and watch people protesting in other countries and <laughs> usually in Europe somewhere. And you think to yourself, well, wouldn't you hate to live there that the people mm. are that disenfranchised with their governments that they take to the streets. Mm -hmm. And now we find our country is in that position. Mm -hmm. And it's this, um, you know, this divide in society between, you know, like, the the rules that they're putting in place mm -hmm. it's it's mm -hmm. you know you've got the prime minister of our country coming on and saying i don't want to make vaccines mandatory and mm -hmm. yet you know so you think oh, okay cool but now for me personally if mm -hmm. i didn't have the jab i wouldn't mm -hmm. be able to travel anywhere and do any work mm -hmm. because i can't get into another state or mm -hmm. if i do go to another state i can't come back into my state unless mm -hmm. i can prove that i'm fully vaccinated Mm -hmm. it's just you know and mm -hmm. now they now they're saying you know you're not going to be able to go to pubs and restaurants and cafes and movies mm -hmm. unless you can prove that you've been double jabbed mm -hmm. and there's a lot of people that have had the vaccine mm -hmm. that are protesting because I, they're going this isn't right i agree i i fully vaccinated and you see it on my facebook please get vaccinated but it's still your decision right I, I totally believe that you're correct, right? And in, in, in what you're saying that they should be upset because if they start taking away 
well, today it's COVID vaccine. What is it tomorrow? Right. Mm. Um, did you vote for this? Did you do that? You know, have you done this? And so as a, as a, an American, it's a slippery slope, friend. And so it, I, that's, I, that's exactly those, the term that my wife uses that it is a slippery slope. Yes. And I think we have to be very careful when we start mandating these things, because we all know that once they have a law, the law is never retracted. It's like mm. <laughs> things yeah. don't go backwards in big government. That's just not how it works. And, mm. um, and it's unfortunate <clears throat> that we have to take to the streets that our governments, you know, I try to understand these are human beings and nobody's dealt with a worldwide pandemic like this before. So I feel that wonderful I, word unprecedented. <laughs> unprecedented yes definitely unprecedented um exactly um you know i you know i try to always be when things get people get heated up i was like listen we're all doing the best we can and i hope at the end of this we can all look back and say you know we didn't do too bad a job but what can we learn you know it's always that there's always a lesson to be learned a hundred percent and i think i tell my daughters like listen m Emily, you have the best opportunity because who else went through medical school during a pandemic and now is going through residency in a pandemic? And you're seeing all these things. You've been to all, she was in Texas for training. Okay. Wow. And now she's in the Northeast in Boston. So you can't get to <laughs> talk about yeah. polar opposite uh, cultures, right? And she was raised in a fairly conservative military family. Um, and so she, but we, you know, but I'm also plant based. Uh, tend to be more, I believe in climate change and promoting environmental, you know, stewardship. <laughs> so yeah. there's a lot of contradictions in my poor little brain, but you know, there's, um, there's so much more we could be doing. And I just feel like we just need to communicate and stop thinking before we start listening. It gets to that listening side of things. Um, yeah. Anyway, but that's just my two cents worth, but I just try to get people off their diabetes meds. <laughs> yeah. Well, well done. And you know, trying to uh, trying to get people to laugh at the mm. moment can be tough. You know, because you've right. got a lot of you got a lot of people unraveling. You mm. know, and and the term, you know, mm. um, it's okay to not be okay, mm -hmm. has never been more true mm -hmm. than what it is right now. You mm -hmm. know, if you're it, you know, one of the things we talk about in suicide prevention is about the active listening and the, um, the validating of someone's mm. stress and emotions. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, the most powerful thing you can say to someone is, well, you know what, if I was in that position, I'd be struggling too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and yeah. it's, you know, you're not alone in that respect. Everyone's going through this. And so it is totally acceptable for you to be stressed out and this was this is the thing is prior to covid and i'm i'm, I'm not familiar obviously with the statistics in this field in your country but prior to covid in australia we already had a problem in society with levels of stress and anxiety oh, and depression absolutely. you know yeah. And so now we've got this, like if, mm -hmm. if you suffered from high level anxiety prior to COVID, you are not doing well now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, and then, you know, everyone has been boxed away and, you know, isolated and that human connection has been declining and, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We have, we have this, um, 
term in Australia that they've been using social distancing. And every single time I get the opportunity to uh, talk to people about it, I go, what they're asking us to be is physically distanced. Mm -hmm. Now, more than ever, we need to be socially connected Mm -hmm. in whatever way that we can make that happen, whether it's like this, a Zoom call or a phone call or, mm -hmm. you know, social media, however it is that you can stay connected mm -hmm. because this social distancing term, it just, oh. Mm -hmm. No, it's the same here. It's the same words as social distancing. And it was interesting. <clears throat> uh, in October, I had an opportunity. I was invited to be part of a documentary. And um, we spent 10 days together, um, strangers from all over the country, uh, diabetics. Um, we had uh, eight total. Two of them were not diabetic, but the other six were insulin-dependent diabetic. And we fed them a plant-based diet. And it's one of the, uh, it's from the Campbells, anyway, well-known in my little niche. And so it was a wonderful time, amazing people, but people have been so socially isolated <clears throat> And they were just couldn't get over how well the group congealed. And um, what was so fun, everyone, but it all came back to you like, well, we've been social, social distancing for so long now that when we have this opportunity to interact and live literally in this huge house, this thing was ginormous, um, and see healing and share food and it's all around the food. That's all it was about. And, you know, stop. I was the doc there and making sure the meds were stopped as they need to be, which was really quickly, of course. And uh, it was just a lovely time. And I'm not sure we could even reproduce that because it was just, I mean, we're talking all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of people. And it was just, it was just really amazing. Like no stress at all. There was That's just so unreal. happy to be together. Yeah. It was amazing. So when, when does that document, is that like an in-house yeah. documentary for your field or is that going no, to be no. like, is that going to be a Netflix special? Yeah. We think it'll either be on either Amazon or Netflix. I know it's so fun. I've never had, you know, one I've never been on, I've been on TV and stuff, but I've never been in that type of situation where there's like, suddenly you're talking to someone, there's a camera. It's like, okay, so you're constantly on. <laughs> I was like, man, I can't even leave the bedroom without my makeup on my hair's in place. <laughs> Make sure this, is this a good color for me? You know, looking slim today. And, you know, so that, those are my thoughts running out of the house and I'm making sure I'm staying on top of the patients and all all that other stuff but yeah so we're hoping um it'll involve uh some really cool things happening so hopefully in the spring it's a lot of footage i don't know how they do it they're remarkable individuals who can take that information like my son my youngest is a film major i was like how do you guys do that and my other one's a marketing major i was like you guys are incredible so you just take this stuff and make it i don't know make it good so we'll see i'm just really excited but uh that's, yeah that's cool it was really fun it was really fun and so but yeah, I, I, you know, getting back to that, that, uh, that piece of the social distancing, I, I'm really looking forward to where we can just go and do things and not have to worry about who's wearing a mask, who's not, who's been jabbed, who's not. <laughs> and, well, you uh, know, like in, in, in school and in, you know, law enforcement, in prison mm -hmm. or whatever, you, you are isolated from everybody else as a way of punishing you. Right. That's true. You know, it's solitary true. confinement is punishment. Yeah, absolutely. And so if you are a single person living by yourself, mm -hmm. you know, that's it. You can't, you know, 
in Australia, they recently um, uh, allowed you to have, I think it was one or two, if you were a single person living by yourself, you were allowed one person or two people that you could wow. physically communicate, like they could come to your house or you could go to their house or something. Your bubble. <laughs> yeah, your little bubble, you know. Mm. Um, so... Yeah, and look, but as bad as what everything is, you know, and this is one of the um, important things about the gratitude exercise, you know, like mm -hmm. it's, it is, you know, doom and gloom for a lot of people. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I know myself personally, I'm incredibly grateful for so much mm. at a time when so many people, like we have a lot of people in Australia at the moment, you know, businesses closing down and you know people changing jobs and just it's incredible like the restaurants and all that the amount of businesses that haven't survived that mm -hmm. have been their life for so long you mm -hmm. know so to be in a position where um you know it the, the way that it worked out the last year and a half because my wife also works in the uh arts industry so she's a costume oh, wow. tailor for the oh, movies wow. oh wow right? so you know we bought our house in december of 2019 oh, wow. and then four months later we're both out of work oh my goodness and and like buying our house was like years in the planning because you've got two people working in the arts wow. trying to get a mortgage you right. know right. so so it was a big deal for us to get it. And then four or five months later, we're both out of work, which oh was, my gosh. Um, and then a month later, I got a phone call from my father who lives in Sydney to say, I'm in hospital. I've got leukemia. Um, oh. I'm dying. So I didn't have any work. So I said to my wife, well, I'm going to go to Sydney and, and he had his own company. So I tried to run that while he was in hospital getting chemo and, like he sadly passed away in March th this year, but I had the opportunity to spend the last year with him mm. that I, if, if I was doing my job, normally I'm traveling all around the world on cruise ships or whatever, I wouldn't have been able to do that, mm. you know? So um, my wife kept the, you know, kept everything running at home when I was in Sydney, you know, going backwards and forwards and stuff. And, and, you know, I'm grateful for that, that I had that opportunity as, as bad as what COVID is that I got to spend that time with him. I'm grateful for, you know, where we live here on the Gold Coast is, is beautiful. It's amazing. We've got wonderful beaches, beautiful mountains. Um, wow. You know, my wife's son and his wife have just had a little baby so I've got a little grandson who's Aww. very exciting and 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 the technology that we have at our disposal you know like mm -hmm. for you and I to be able to do this now you told me right at the start how old you are right which I still can't get my head around but you're going to know what I'm talking about this here what we're doing oh. this is George Jetson stuff <laughs> yes right? it is do you oh. remember George Jetson oh, yes hundred percent. Right. Okay, where he would have the screen on his thing Sprocking and he would be talking to his boss, basically sprocket, and you're going, this is what we're doing. Exactly what we're doing. What are our grandkids going to be doing? When I have grandkids, 
Hey, you know, do you know of any good girls or anybody? And we've got some boys, good looking boys. <laughs> <laughs> That's a mother always looking. I hear you know, their grandkids are amazing. Yeah. Well, he's only eight months old. Well, I know, but I still hear they're just pretty phenomenal. Oh, this look, it's the, it's, it's the best thing. And the thing is, is that because I've never had any kids Mm. myself you know mm. so you get to go straight this, to the grandkids this, this is my wife's son and his yeah so that's right i get the you know i'm straight to the good <laughs> bit you know i get all the fun uh-huh. it's yeah yeah it's and, the best yeah yeah well there's some of us that you know house those little creatures for nine months popped them out popped another one popped another one i'm like i'm waiting come on <laughs> And look, I've got, I'm going to, I'm going to try and, uh, I'm going to try and show you this because this is, so I've got this thing going with, um, with my wife's son about how much he, uh, the, the baby loves his granddad. Right. And, and he's only eight months old. Right? Oh, they, know and, who they, and, they know who to love. And so he's <laughs> like, you know, hey, what makes you think he's, and I'm like, well, have a look at this. So. Can you see that? I'm going to pin you here. Let me see here. Go ahead. Oh, oh my goodness. What has he got in his hand? Oh, hang on a tick. It's, it's, uh, the camera's not. He's holding something. What is that? It's a little book. It's got to be a microphone or something. No, it's a, it's a photo of me. Oh, is it? This is a, this is, this would be such a wonderful thing in my life. I just want, I just want to be able to do that. All right. Now I got a dog, you know, I can show you the same type of picture, but it's, it's a dog. Literally. I mean, this literally, I showed my patients. This is me and my dog, Daisy. Yeah. You can see it, but anyway, uh, yeah, anyway, but, <laughs> but I, yeah. I, I, it's, it's phenomenal. I just wanted to mention real quickly too. You know, you had mentioned about watching um, the uh, the news, and I even long before I started doing this. You know, I've been a doctor around twenty some odd years or so, and when I had a patient, and I lived in this little rural town, other side of the mountains in Colorado, and he would come in, and his blood pressure was just skyrocketing. And he's like depressed and angry. And I'm like, what is going on? Cause he really is a nice human. Um, but he has these things. He goes, well, I sit in my garage and I just watch the news and I can't believe they're doing that. And I was like, turn off the television. And he's like, <laughs> like, it was like this dawn of like, what did you just say? As like, you know, it's okay to turn off the television and they're trying to get you riled up. So you'll stay tuned in. And keep coming back for why we want to be tuned into bad news. I don't know. It's a human thing. And he's like, I never thought of that. I was like, (laughs) logical. Light bulb moment. (laughs) Yeah. When it was just literally someone had given the permission, I guess, to have this thought of turning it off. And it helped tremendously because I'm like, you can't allow things that you can't control dictate your life. This is really bad. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it was interesting. It's phenomenal, and I've kept you way past the hour we agreed on. So I, I will do this. I will. Oh, ask. Yes, I, I do have to get going. <laughs> yes, sir. And could you give me one slight bit of advice for someone who needs a little more laughter in their life? What would you tell someone? Ask yourself what makes me laugh. And if you're in a position where you think you, you know, you don't have much to laugh about right now, um, 
you know, go back and look at your life and look at, you know, break it into like seven year chunks mm. and, you know, and look at the people that you've known over your lifetime and who's made you laugh and, and when was the last time that you really laughed at something? And I mean, really laughed, you know, mm. and there's a big difference between the laughing at say watching a YouTube clip or, or watching a funny movie or a sitcom um, than the laughter that you'll experience when you're with other people, you know, mm. because I'm talking about that type of laughter where your jaw is sore, your stomach's cramping, your tears coming out. We've all had it, you know, and mm. this is one of the things that I say to people is that laughter has been given to us. Mm -hmm. by whatever means of creator or creation that you subscribe to as mm -hmm. a biological release valve for overcoming stress, anxiety, and depression. And the proof of this is in the fact that babies and infants laugh years before they have any conceptual understanding of language or humor. Mm. I love that. You, you know, know what? What are they laughing at? These babies, you uh, know? And and so it's a natural thing. So yes. at some, you know, like I've had so many people over the years say, I don't like comedians. I don't like, I, I, I don't laugh, mate. You know, I've actually had people say, I don't laugh at anything. Really? Right? And I say to that person, I can promise you at some point in your life, you have laughed at something. Mm -hmm. Guaranteed. Mm -hmm. so if you if you think to yourself that you you're going through a hard time right now and you don't have anything to laugh at just sit with the idea of mm -hmm. well what is it that makes me laugh you know mm -hmm. and then once you once you're able to articulate an answer to that then you can go about ways of trying to bring more laughter into your life you know oh, I like mm -hmm. Billy Connolly well, get some Billy Connolly DVDs or some YouTube clips or, you know, I like Friends makes me laugh. Well, when was the last time you watched an episode or whatever, mm -hmm. you know? So, but you've got to start with answering the first one. What is it that makes me laugh is probably the mm -hmm. most important one. I think that's fabulous. And you just visualize that too. But, you know, honestly, when you said the baby's laughing, two things, does a, a new mom, my first and ultimate goal besides the smile was the giggle i wanted that of course. Giggle so bad and it was the the little blowing on the belly that finally did it and i was like yes i found the yeah. I found and, the how, and how <laughs> much did that light you oh. up from inside okay i can't even tell you any child laughing i will literally play over and over again because it brings me such joy just to hear a little baby or kid laugh like it's like the ultimate high for me oh well, my goodness <laughs> in my laughter clinic presentation when i say to people about babies laughing i go check this out and i press play and i've got a video clip of two and a half minutes of babies laughing oh my god and there's not I... a there's not one person in the audience that doesn't laugh there we are made and wired oh my gosh just the thought of it makes me just happiness and so i love that i love that you just say even if like today you feel like there's nothing to make you laugh just sit back and think about it and it'll at least bring a smile to you but i also think how sad if someone says they don't laugh i'm like what happened to that human that put them in that position that that that's 
that makes me sad. So, yeah. And anyway. that's, that's why there's, you know, so much research to, you know, do people that suffer from clinical depression still access have to access to their sense of humour? And mm. the research shows, yes, they do. It's just mm. that they might laugh at something different than what they, they might previously have laughed at. And it makes complete sense because I know my daughter's home, you know, as there's all five of us and only two of us are medical, we laugh at poop and we laugh at, you know, things that my, my husband's like, we're trying to eat. I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put the poop jokes later for dessert. So, you know, but anyway, yeah, I totally get that. Well, thank you so much for it. This was absolutely as delightful and beyond I could imagine. Oh my gosh, this was such a lovely conversation. And thank you so much for your extra time. I so appreciate it. Oh, look, I, look, I totally agree. I've totally enjoyed you know our time chatting together and i i do feel like we could continue this conversation oh. for hours but oh. you know if if look at any point in the future if you would like to you know revisit this at some point we talk yes. about you know i'd be totally up for that because you you cool. know i've been awesome. interviewed by a fair few people over the years and you are an absolute delight Oh, well, thank you. And I take that. I've really tried to hone this craft. I enjoy interviewing and this is my fifth year. Well, I'm going into my sixth year now of the podcast. So really, really enjoy talking to people. So thank you again. And I just can't, I, I would totally take you up on that. Thanks for watching. And I hope you enjoyed that video. Before you go though, please hit the subscribe button and the alert button. So you will be notified whenever we upload any new videos. On Monday, we upload the Healthy Human Revolution podcast. Now, if you'd rather listen to the podcast, you can find it on all the major platforms such as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and even Spotify. Now, if you're looking for more resources on how to start a plant-based diet, sustain a plant-based diet, exercise, recipes, anything regarding wellness, we've got you covered. Check out HealthyHumanRevolution.com. And again, thanks for watching.